0: You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, the official podcast of the Coastal L.A. Singles Ministry, where our focus is reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. Well, If you're visiting, uh, I'm doing a series called uh, The Life-Changing a Word of God, and I'm teaching uh, the church on how to study the Bible, how to help somebody change, how to help someone become a Christian. And I'm just going, I'm doing an overview. I'm not going, I'm not drilling down. I'm just kind of doing a broad sweep of some of the basics on uh, how somebody becomes a Christian. And the Word of God is so powerful. Uh, It changes lives. Are we good to go on the, okay, it's on the, it's on the um, desktop. And I think I opened it and collapsed it. And, you know, the Word of God is very, very powerful. If you could turn over to Proverbs chapter 24, well, we're getting this up. Proverbs chapter 24, and uh, I uh, talked about the, uh, a couple weeks ago, about uh, kind of some practicals that I was going to do with you. I forgot to do it last week, so next week I'll do two, Uh, but tonight I want to talk about, just at the beginning, before we get into our study, I want to talk about how do I help? What's my part in helping someone change, become a Christian? Or what do I do when I'm studying the Bible with somebody and they're stuck? So I'm just going to give you a few practicals. Let's just look at this verse and then we'll get into our study in a minute. Proverbs twenty four eleven verse 12. It says, Rescue those being led away to death or slaughter. Hold back, uh, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, But we knew nothing about this, does not he who weigh the heart perceive it? Does not he who guard your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to... To what he has done, And, you know, I love this passage because studying the Bible with people is rescuing somebody. If somebody was drowning as you're walking across a bridge, you wouldn't just go, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, somebody else will get to them and I'm not going to, I'm really busy. I've got a hair appointment right now or I have a dentist appointment. Or I'm going to be late to work. I'm not going to get too involved right now. Plus, it looks messy and kind of scary. Even if you couldn't swim or it was too cold, you'd find somebody to help. You'd flag somebody down. You'd get on 911 on your phone. You'd try to find a a professional, a police officer, a firefighter, somebody that could help, but you wouldn't just stand there. You'd want to rescue. If somebody jumped in and started swimming and saved that person and dragged them over, you know, you might take off your jacket and throw it out to them to help pull them on in, or somebody grabs a rope from their car. You'd help them, and you'd grab the rope, and you'd help together to try to save that person's life. You know, that's what we do when we study the Bible with people. It doesn't seem like that because from the outside we all look the same most of the time. Sometimes you can tell somebody's really hurting from the outside, but most of the time you can't. But the Bible teaches spiritually that when we help somebody, we are rescuing people from death. Do you believe that? And I, and I think about this whole idea of staggering towards slaughter, that they have no idea sin and darkness and discouragement is it's beat them up to the point where they can't even stand on their own. They're dizzy, they're confused, they're lost. And I I love what this writer says. He says, but if we say, I didn't know. God says, really? Don't I know your heart? Don't I know if you tune out the cries of others? Can't I see if you're just giving in to cowardice or selfishness or distraction? Don't I know? Don't I weigh your heart? Can I perceive it? He's saying, sift your heart, examine yourself. And he says, doesn't God, the one that guards your life, know if you care about others? And I love this last line. Won't he repay everyone according to what he has done? That God knows that when we put our hearts into helping others, rescuing them, he repays us for it. Um, You know, I just think it's so cool that uh, some of the people, uh, for example, I reached out to uh, my sister uh, I reached out to my mom who became a disciple. She helped my sister become a disciple, got her connected. And now, like, you know, almost 20 years later, she's helping Gina, my 15-year-old, and Danny. You know, Danny's a disciple, but strengthening Danny. And she, I, I, I texted her, hey, Felicia, she, that's my sister's name. My, my daughters are coming in town these different weeks. Can you get time with them? And She took a day off work and took one out. Um, what's that thing where you sit on the little paddle boat, you know, with your feet? You guys know what I'm talking about. Took one out and... Is that what it's called, paddle boat? I don't know what it's called. And I took one out, had a great talk with Danny, and then took another one out and spent the day with her and took a couple days off work. And She texted me, like, you have such great girls. You're doing such a great job with them. But, you know, and then uh, Gina comes back and says, Dad, I just love Felicia. She is amazing. And I just thought, you know, how cool it is that years and years later that my sister, and we used to, like, go at it. You know what I'm saying? Um, Anyway, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Is helping my daughter, or other people I've helped that are now coming full circle, like Erica. You know, Michelle studied the Bible with Erica like ten years ago, right? In the campus ministry, and we've helped Erica come from some really challenging time in her faith. And Erica has like paid us back ten times and ten times and then some, helping Danielle uh, over the last couple years. And I just love God repaying us for helping others, and you know, it all it's all connected. And I, I know that's just what I can see. I know God helps us in so many other ways. Here's how you help some people, how you can help, and how you can help people to be unstuck. Number one, ask to be involved and make yourself available to study the Bible with people. Do you have a day uh, set during the week that you go, this is my open night that I try to get with people that are studying the Bible? Do you think that way? Or have you thought that way? You know, if you don't think that way, then you probably won't plan for that. But if you do think that way, then you'll ask yourself what? Is there anybody studying? You know, Alex Chase... In the Long Beach Ministry, heard about someone studying the Bible, and so he tracked down Rick Mark and said, "Rick, this is Alex. I heard there's a study. I'd like to be involved. Plus, Marco gave us the 30-day challenge, then a month to get in a study." I never went to Alex and said, "Alex, let's get. Come on, man. Let's get it together right here. Let's go after it." He just on his own heart heard somehow and said, "I want to help." So we've got to ask, "Hey, I want to be involved and be available." To help people spiritually. Uh, if you want to help people get unstuck spiritually, sometimes you'll study the Bible with people and they'll get it in the head but not in the heart. Or they'll go through the motions but you're wondering why is their heart not moving? Why aren't they changing? I think some of the things that help people get unstuck is spending relational time with them. That they know that you love them and you care for them, not just want to give them information. And spending relational time, both fun time and spiritual time, can really help people get unstuck when there's a genuine love. Number three, uh, getting others involved. Sometimes you're studying with somebody and you're stuck. I got with a guy uh, on Sunday who studied all the way through the cross, which we'll talk about tonight. And um, I was just kind of shared my testimony with him, where I've come from, how my life changed, et cetera, et cetera. He's at the cross study, and then I find out he doesn't believe Jesus is even the only way. So I'm thinking, hmm, this guy's stuck. So I said, hey, why don't you go back and read the book a case for Christ, and um, and I think we need to backtrack right here. But it's getting others involved who can relate with people, and then getting advice from others. Sometimes you're studying with somebody, and you're moving along, and they're not really moving; they're stuck. But you get someone else in there that has the same upbringing, religious background, from the same part of the country or the world, and you can ha- them getting involved, or maybe more mature, whatever. Them getting involved can often help that person get unstuck, and get a ton of advice. We are surrounded by so many wise people spiritually just in this room that if we would just get advice, and God always honors that humility of wanting to get help, uh, that can help people get unstuck. Number four, pray, pray, and then pray some more for wisdom and a breakthrough. God, help me as I go into this study. I know what to do, but I don't know how to do it because it doesn't seem like they're moving. Reveal to me what they need. Reveal to me what the real issue is. God, tonight, I pray that it really connects with their heart. So praying for God to move, and then praying for God to reveal or to break through in that person's heart. Number five, this is a good one. Ask the person that you're studying with, hey, Marco, that's, actually, that's the guy you're studying with. You know, we've been studying for a while, and you seem stuck. What's going on? And you can say it in a way that's not interrogatory or puts them on the defense, but I, I, I can't I've been praying about it. I've been thinking about it. I can't put my finger on it. Can you shed some light for me? Because it seems like you're nodding your head, or it seems like you like this you know, meeting and having Bible study, but it doesn't seem like it's your own thing. It doesn't seem like you're really changing. What, what, what is it? What's going on? What are you, is there something you're holding back? Is there something you're not telling us? Is there something that you're hurt by that's shielding your heart? Is You're just not really that interested and you're just going along with this because you have nothing better to do on a Thursday night. I don't know, but you, often you ask people and they'll go, I'll tell you what it is. My mom died two years ago and I'm angry at God to this day. And you didn't had no idea that's what it was. Well, actually what it is, is my girlfriend's given me a lot of heat because I've had some talks with her and I know this is going to make changes in our relationship and I'm scared. Do you know what I'm saying? So sometimes if you just ask people, what is it? They'll tell you. Number six, ask people to fast and pray with you. We are in a spiritual battle for souls against demons and spirit, the spiritual force of evil that you you and I cannot physically see. Just like you can't physically see God, right, his, his being, His shape, His form, you can see God in a lot of things. You can see Him in the Word. You can see Him in your own heart, how He's changed you. You can see Him in creation. You can see Him in other people. You can see him in different miracles. So you can see God, but you can't see his form. You can't see the demons. You can't see Satan. But we are in a spiritual war. If you don't believe me, go try this next week. Say, I'm going to pray for an hour a day. For seven days. And see how hard it is. How you get distracted. How you get discouraged. How you... Like, just how many things get in your way from something... That's simple, because Satan doesn't want us to be spiritually tuned into God. But we've got to ask people to pray and to fast. God, break through. Do something miraculous. Number seven, give them scriptural assignments, and then ask them to wrestle with the scriptures you gave them. That doesn't mean you hand them a Bible and they start wrestling with it. It means that you give them two, three, five, ten verses, and you say, hey, after each scripture, ask yourself these two questions. What is the scripture saying, and what's god's saying to me and how you know or what is the scripture saying to me and what does god want me to do or whatever just getting them to wrestle with the word you know often you go back how'd it go i didn't read it what yeah you know you know yeah you know okay all right well when are you gonna read oh i'll do it tomorrow okay well we meet next week make sure you read it oh no i didn't you know it's because they're not engaging god yet it's not they just forgot or they're distracted they're not deciding on their own, I want to hear from God myself. It's amazing how that can help people get in stuck. And then finally, number eight, a people need to hear grace and truth with love. Both. I'm, no one's good at both. We're all stronger or weaker in one or the other. Jesus was the only perfect one. The Bible says full of grace and truth. But people need to hear both. They need to hear grace that God loves them, it's not what they do, it's who they are because of God making them, and how it's about God's goodness, about God's vision for them, God's belief in them, God's love for them, God's forgiveness, that there's hope, there's never not hope, then they need to hear the truth. You know, how do you feel about what God thinks about your behavior? How do you feel about what God thinks about your arrogance? You know, I've noticed you made a lot of excuses. Can you stop? and just obey God. I mean, and you say it with love, you say it with kindness, you don't say it to humiliate or to put someone down, but you speak the truth and you speak with, in grace, but you do it with love and it's amazing how that can help people. Often, some of us study the Bible with people and we're literally no more than we get together kind of like a sales pitch, give them a little lesson and then we move on. But the heart doesn't move. We get together, we do a little lesson, we move on. Versus asking people to obey, teaching them to obey And that takes grace and truth, and it has to be done with love. Okay, we're going to switch now. Uh, Tonight, I'm going to do a review, a couple studies. We're just going to look at a couple verses for one study, and then a, uh, a few verses for the other study. But tonight, these are the two most, I would say, in some ways, the most important studies. And if you imagine becoming a Christian like getting on a train, okay? train stops at a station, you walk into the station, you buy your ticket, you wait, you know, you, you wait till it's your turn, the conductors come out and they say, All right, train seven thirty two to San Diego, leaving in two minutes. Everybody starts getting on the train. That's your Bible studies beginning. The door shuts, right? And then the train takes off from Fullerton to the next station, stops, does it again to the next station, all the way till it gets to San Diego. And when you study the Bible with people, it's like getting on a train ride you're willing, you get in there, you come on, you're receptive, the conductor calls, you meet, you go on in, you sit down, the door is shut, you move to the next stop, and each study is kind of like a stop. This study is where most people jump off the train. Some jump off while it's moving. You know what I mean? Like, hey, where's Marco? And you see him rolling down into the ditch and then just taking off. I mean, seriously, or into the night. You know, just rolling down the ditch and then, I'm out of here, man. I'm gone. Or they just kind of the doors open at the next station and you're just like... You know, you don't even... It's not even a jumping when it's... It's like, oh, hey, I'll be there next Thursday. Thanks so much. Not, I'm out of here. This is where people jump off the train. Do You want to clear an elevator? Talk about sin. I'm not saying being one of those people with a bullhorn up in people's face all judgmental. I'm just saying talk about sin. You go, Marco, that's really weird. It is weird. Don't do it. But I'm just saying... Jesus says in John 15 that one of the reasons he came was to convict the world of sin. And one of the reasons people go to church but keep distant, like they, I've had many people come to church and say, oh, I say, how was it? They go, oh, it was great. But I wasn't comfortable. So I won't be coming back. But I really liked it. You know, And kind of, you were great. It was great. Are you coming back? Oh, No. Why not? Was not comfortable. I've had people tell me, I met a guy mountain biking maybe a year ago. He was mountain biking. I was hiking with this guy I was reaching out to. And I invited him to church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Okay, I want to come. I want to come. He came the next day. Uh, liked it. Came back one more time, or maybe not again. And then he texted me back, my girlfriend and I are going to look for a church we're more comfortable with. where I don't have to be committed and known. Something like that. Something with less commitment and more anonymity. Really? You know, sin sorts everything out. Everybody sins. Everybody's a sinner and everybody is sinful. But the difference between someone that follows Jesus and the rest of the world is someone that follows Jesus is seeking Jesus and when they sin, they get open, they repent, they walk in the light, and they don't want to sin. And they keep pursuing Jesus. Someone that's not following Jesus, sin makes them stumble too because that's what sin does. But they get up, they may feel hungover literally and figuratively from sin and they get up and they're kind of beat up and stumbling from the effects of sin and they just keep following sin. And it's so important to realize this, this passage in Psalm 36 verse 1 and 2, it says an oracle, David's preaching here, and he says an oracle is within my heart Concerning the sinfulness of the wicked, there is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes, for in your own eyes, you flatter yourself too much to detect or hate your sin. Well, it's okay to have sex because we're, this is something I said. We're married in our hearts. Have you ever, anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever known anyone that said that? Anybody besides me say that? Okay, three of us. Okay, so the rest, four of us. The rest of you, what it is, that's justification. It's rationalization. Your conscience tells you one thing. Society says, what's the big deal? Why is your conscience even bothering you? And so to not feel bad, you say, well, I don't sleep around just one person, and it's kind of like we're married in our hearts. It's a cop-out. It's rationalization. So you can flatter yourself in all kinds of ways so much that you can't see, detect, or hate your sin. It's so important that we detect and hate our sin. Look what this woman wrote in a book about sin. She said, It's kind of interesting if you think about it. She says, sin is our only hope. You go, what? Sin is our only hope because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken. And there is no hope of transformation for a world whose inhabitants accept that is sadly but irreversibly wrecked. What a great quote that we're in sin. We we sin. We struggle. Our only hope is dealing with the sin in our lives. And not just one time but dealing with it on a regular basis. You know, there's a story about a man named John Elliott. It's a true story. And John Elliott was a uh, forest ranger, so he was familiar with the elements in Canada. And you know the weather in Canada is a little different than California. And uh, John Elliott was a very experienced ranger, forest ranger, and so he was sent out one day to go check on the snowpack for avalanche zones. Because you know how everything can look fine, but if an area is avalanche dangerous, you've got to not allow skiers to go there, sledders to go there, trucks to go there, people hiking there, snowshoe or whatever. And there's ways they can test for it. And so that was his job. He went out in a really snowy day to check, check on that. And he spent miles and miles uh, snowmobiling, walking, checking, freezing cold to see where the avalanches were. And so dusk came, and he was completely exhausted. And he had decided, it's cold, it's dangerous, I'm exhausted, it's time for me to hole up. And he made it to his cabin, but he was so cold and so tired from being out from dusk, you know, in the morning till dusk at night. And he was so dazed with fatigue that he got into his cabin and he just laid on the floor. He didn't light a fire or remove his wet clothing. As the blizzard started blasting through the cracks in the old cabin walls, the sleeping forest ranger started falling asleep into oblivion, not realizing and, and paralyzed by the storm's icy winds. He didn't realize, I'm dying. Suddenly, his dog, a St. Bernard, springs into ac- action and just starts whining and whining and licking and moving with his nose, his friend who was almost in a coma. He was so cold and in such bad shape. The dog was John's constant companion, a St. Bernard, a long line of dogs famous for their heroics in times of crisis. John said this, he said, quote, If that dog hadn't been with me in that cabin, I would be dead today. He says, when you're freezing to death, your body actually feels warm all over and you don't wake up because it feels good to be warm. Even though you're not warm, that's what your body's telling you. And this story, this moving true story, illustrates the spiritual condition of many and most in our world today. They're cold spiritually. They're dying spiritually. And sadly, they're oblivious to the true condition. And thank, thanks to God, He arouses us. He wakes us up. He sends people into our lives to shake us, to whine, to complain, to kind of push their nose in our business, trying to get our attention, trying to help us see and detect our sin. And sometimes He uses methods that are drastic, but it's always for our good. Let's not imagine that when He's shaking us, He's doing it to hurt us or hates us, but that He's awakening us from a lethargy because he loves us and wants to save us from eternal death. That's what we do. That's why we help people. That's why we allow people in our lives even after we become a Christian. Revelation 16, verse 15. I, I, you know, I've read this verse before, but never stood out to me like this. He says, behold, Jesus says, I come like a thief. How does a thief come? Quick and unexpected. He says, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake, you ready for this, and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Are you dressed spiritually today? Are you naked? Are you awake spiritually today? Or has sin lulled you into a sleep? Or such a state of drowsiness you don't detect or hate your sin? Let's be ready to meet our Maker at any time. Turning your Bibles over to Galatians 5, uh, the Light and Darkness Study is what it's called. It's a study to teach you from what darkness is and how to get from darkness to light. We're just going to look at a couple verses here, and that's it for this study, and I'll give you some practicals. But it's helping us understand the consequences of sin and that there's hope of God's salvation. You know, the longer you're a Christian, if you're doing well spiritually, and no one's doing well all the time, but we want to fight to keep doing well. The longer you're a Christian, if you're doing well, the more you see your sinfulness. And that makes you, in a spirit, if you process it spiritually, it makes you want to draw closer to God. Not repel from God, it makes you just more grateful and humble and desperate and dependent and... Just wanting to do what God wants because you realize, oh man, just when I thought I figured it out, there's another layer of sin. Just when I thought I could cruise, you know, cruise control, or just when I thought I'm now better than everybody. You find, you know what I mean, you never say that to yourself. You just kind of feel it, a little superior, like, I wouldn't do that. I'm way beyond that. I'm not a custer anymore like many of these folks. I'm not a... Do you know what I'm saying? And then God just goes, how about that? And you're like, ah, busted, self-righteous. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. So, you're visiting today. The Bible has a lot of lists of sin. Not any one of them is exhaustive. That doesn't mean it makes you tired. It means there's other things that that aren't listed that you just know are sin. But there's about six or seven lists, blatant lists of Bible... uh, uh, blatant lists in the Bible of sin. And in Galatians 5.19, this is just one of them. You can go read the whole chapter later if you want. It says the acts of the sinful nature are what? Meaning what? Duh! (laughs) Really? You didn't know that was wrong? I remember I was studying the Bible with a 60-year-old guy. This was back in 90-something, 93. And uh, I'll just change his name. I said... Bob had committed a lot of adultery on his wife. He was, you know, been married 30, 40 years, and I remember saying, "Bob, that is very wicked. How much you've cheated on your wife?" And he literally went like this: "Oh, come on, ooh, you know." As I kept challenging him, I don't know. If it was wicked. It was probably not right, but I wouldn't say wicked. You know, like everything we said to try to put a sting, he tried to downplay it. Yeah, ooh, no, nah, hey, it's not that bad. Kind of. I mean, it's so, It sounds funny but we can do the same things. And what we we're trying to say is, this is obvious, and it's, a, it's um, rebellious towards God, and it's a lot worse than you think. But he was so used to it, that when we used an adjective that he thought was reserved for Hitler and the crew, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? He had put himself in a different category. And did not want to feel bad, which I get, I don't want to feel bad. Didn't want to feel bad about his sin. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality. That's any type of sexual act outside of marriage. Adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, sexual immorality, having intercourse with someone you're not married with. That's sexual immorality. Impurity, masturbation, lust, pornography. Do you know why it's getting quiet? Because there's a lot of you that are committed the acts of the sinful nature as a Christian. And let me tell you something. I'm not perfect, but I fear God. And if you play games with God, you will be chopped down like a tree. I am not kidding. 26 years I've been a disciple, I've watched people like, hey, what happened to so-and-so? And And then you find out, oh, hmm, yeah. Not in a judgmental, you know, but really, I wish they would ask for help. We need to fear God. We need to play games. Let me just say something free about pornography. It's here to stay. But it shouldn't be here to stay in your heart. Because it's so accessible, I could get it right now on my phone. We justified it. When I was in high school and college, you'd have to go down to the store, to the 7-Eleven, and you'd have to buy a porno magazine, or you'd have to go to a video store, and you'd have to walk to the back with the creepo section and you'd have to walk behind the the kind of the wall, the pink wall or whatever, purple wall, that said adults only with a glowing sign, and you'd go like, oh man, I hope there's nobody here that I know. And you just kind of... And then, you know, Mrs. M- Mrs. Millicent would walk in getting, you know, Mary Poppins or something, you'd be like, oh shoot! You know, just duck down. or, We don't have to do that anymore. I didn't do that. I'm just saying that's kind of how it was. <laughs> I had somebody else get them. But seriously... uh just because it's easy, should you make an excuse and go, oh, yeah, I got a little problem, got a little problem. I've said this before. If the smartphone is causing you to sin, get a stupid phone. And it sounds, it sounds funny, but you care more about having access to the Internet than access to God. You care more about being cool than being approved of by God. And so you have this instant porno cam in your phone at any time if it's a real problem for you and you're just okay with it. Would you do the same thing with alcohol, or drugs, or anything else that you had a real problem with in the past? I want to challenge some of you to fear God. Come on. Seriously. Just because they're obvious, they shouldn't be obvious in a Christian's life. You go, but nobody knows. They're not obvious. God knows. And it's on your face. Because your face gets hard. And your heart gets hard. We need to be, have strong convictions about this. Debauchery, overindulging in anything, overworking, overspending, oversleeping. It's overindulging in the senses, overeating. Idolatry, placing anything in higher priority than God. Your job, your school, your parents, your free time, your car, whatever. Your fitness, anything that you go, I love, my affection. Oh, you don't have to get me motivated for that. God, well, anything that has a, has more of your heart than God is idolatry. Witchcraft, uh, that's anything like the. Uh, black magic seances tarot cards uh, the occult anything like that uh, hatred its pretty self-explanatory discord a, a spirit of disunity argumentativeness jealousy a possessiveness for other people or their what they you know other people fits of rage losing control selfish ambition just wanting you're very driven but if, only if it benefits you uh, dissensions factions Again, it's a form of prejudice, disunity. Envy, wanting someone's possession or position. Jealousy, wanting that person. Envy, wanting their position or possessions. Drunkenness, any type of drugs or alcohol that changes or alters your mind. You go, I was just buzzed, I wasn't drunk. That's drunkenness according to the Bible. Anything that makes your mind altered. Stupor is the word. Not stupid, stupor. Orgies, that's just group sin group drinking, group parties, group sex, anything where because there's more than a few people, everyone's getting in the frenzy, and now sin's more, it's easier, it's more fun, it's more accepted, because there's a whole group of people going, whoop, whoop, come on, I've done it. You know, drink, drink. You ever done that at a party? And the guys over there, oh, 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 yes. It's where you're kind of cheering each other on. It's funny, but think about it from God's perspective. You're cheering each other on, Sin, 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 sin. Yes! Idiot. You know, I mean, like, just... It's group sin. Because you're coming together, there's more sin. And then he says, and the like. That's anything else you can think of. Lying, cheating, prejudice, stealing, materialism. I mean, just pick something, and the like. He says, let's read this together out loud. Ready? You guys ready? You got your Bible? It says, I warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's read it one more time. I warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Trivia with no prize. Who is he writing to? Christians or non-Christians? Christians. Christians. So you go, if you're non-Christian, well, it doesn't apply to me. No. I'm just saying he was writing to Christians because some had become born again but we're committing these sins. Maybe just not in such an obvious fashion. We've got to fear God and hate sin. Mark chapter 7 verse 20 says this. Mark 7 verse 20. Jesus is talking about sin and where it comes from. And he says in verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. They were arguing over ceremonial food. Like don't eat certain foods that God says not to. It will make you ceremonially unclean. Jesus is saying, hey, let's talk about something a little bit deeper than ceremonial uncleanliness. Let's talk about real uncleanliness. And let's talk about where sin comes from in all of us. He says, for, he went on, for what comes out of a person defiles them. For it is from where? Within. I don't know about you, but I'm scared of my own heart. Part of why I have times with God every day is because I'm scared of the evil within. No one's asking me. No one's like, how long was it? What did you read? How long did you pray? Were you sincere? Did you really pray? No one's asking me. But I'm afraid of what's within. That's not the only motivation to go be with God, but it's a strong motivation because I have a hard time being righteous with time with God. I have a hard time dealing with what's within, even though I read my Bible. I have a hard time with what's within, even though I confess my sin and temptation and try to stay open. I have a hard time with what's within, even if I surround myself with Christians. But imagine dealing within and not having those things. We've got to be a people that love God and love the light and love righteousness and love the fellowship. We don't need to be caught are found out, we need to be telling people, here's what's within, on a regular basis. And not just confessing sin, the Bible says to do that, but to confess the temptations, you say, but they're not sin. But they lead the sin. And when you're open about the things that are tempting you, it often stops them from becoming what? Sin. And if you have a good friend, they'll ask you, Hayes, how's it going with those areas? He says, for from within, out of a person's heart, that's where evil thoughts come from. Sexual immorality comes from. Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Let's read that last verse together, verse 23. Ready? All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I don't know about you, this makes me want to fear God and be righteous and not just check my list. I did this, I did this, I did this. Now, God, cool, leave me alone right now. I'm good. No, this makes me want to walk with God and walk with people of God and stay busy with God's purpose because when you're idle, what does it lead to? Sin every time. If your mind is just flapping around, it gets filled up with what's ever in front of you. If your mind's focused and helping people, walking with God, being a servant to the poor, you don't want to sin. You're not... This interests you. I mean, you don't come home from a sin study going, okay, now where's my phone? I want to look at some quick porn before I go to bed. That's the last thing on your mind. In fact, if you have the thought, you're like, oh my gosh, Satan just doesn't let up. And you send someone a text. Hey, pray for me. Had a great study tonight. And check this out. I just got tempted to look at pornography. Like out of the blue. Satan's a dog. Pray for me. And you get on your knees and you pray for yourself and you just throw out that lifeline for help. We got to be a people that what you see is who you are. Glass houses, not false walls. You know, Disneyland and Universal Studios, they got the false cities with just a wall, nothing behind it. We can't be like that. We need to be, what you see is who you are. And no one's perfect, but we need to understand the consequences of sin and give people hope. Here's just some practicals when you do this study. You communicate to somebody how much you appreciate their courage to be open. After that study, you ask people, hey, be open about your life. You share about where you've come from, what you've been involved in, and then you ask them to be open about their life. And you tell them, there's nothing you've shared that makes me think less of you. In fact, it makes me respect you and love and appreciate your courage even more. Asking them, after looking at these scriptures, are you ready to repent of your sins? If not, what's holding you back from repenting? Third practical at the end of the study, you give them the notes and you say, go back and read all these verses. And do you have any additional things that you want to be open about? I lied the first time I went through the sin study. You say, why would you do that? Because I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. I was so down on myself. I'd been involved in so much darkness. I thought, boy, this is hard enough, but I can't tell them everything. And I remember always having this insecurity and this fear of, Marco, what are you going to do, though, with God? Like, when it's time to talk to God about it. So, yeah, you've kept everything from people, but what about when it's time to face God? And I would be so overwhelmed by that thought. I'd go, well, um, you know, talking to yourself. He'll forgive me. I'm not going to worry about it. And then i just push it in the back of the closet, just not knowing, how do I deal with that? What do I do about that? And then the last practical is a great practical. good practice is to get people to write a, Heartfelt apology letter to God. It's helpful that they write out all the sins they've ever committed that they can remember. And that exercise is to help them get in touch with that barrier of sin that's been growing for years and that exists between them and God. And then it helps them see specifically, like bricks in a wall, here's the things I need to repent of. Often you ask people to write it down, and they'll bring you back a 3x5 card, and you go, Really? That's all the sin you've ever committed? Well, you know that I know that you know. You know? And you go, not really. I mean, I know because I told you everything I did. But, And then you come back and there's four more words. That's it? Yeah, pretty much. We can just talk about it. Why is it important to write it down? This is the analogy I always give people. If I was driving here and a motorcycle went down, and as he went down, he hit a wire, those wires that hold up the telephone poles, and it decapitated him. That's not what happened, if it did. And I told you about it. Would it gross you out? Would it get your attention? They said, yeah. I said, how about if I took some pictures with my phone and showed you, whether you wanted to see them or not, which would have a greater impact on you. And every time they say, the pictures. Because a picture does what? It says a thousand words. It lets you fill in the blanks yourself. And so, when you're writing out your letter to God, apologizing for all your sin, and all the sin you've done, it is just you taking a couple Polaroid shots of what's within. It's helping you face who? You. It's helping you face yourself that's been there all along. Amen? You know, this is a picture of the Vietnam uh, Vietnam uh, Veterans Memorial. Anybody been there? Okay, there's about five of us. I've been there. It's pretty amazing. But in the Vietnam Veteran, uh, Veterans Memorial, it's black granite. And etched in the black granite is the 58,156 servicemen and women that lost their lives in Vietnam. Now, obviously, there's a lot more that have PTSD or homeless have killed themselves since, et cetera, et cetera. I And mean, that's not the tragedy of the whole war. Lost arms, legs, d- do you know what I'm saying? Head injuries. But 58,000 deceased, 156. And so veterans will come from all over the world. Here's a veteran from the Vietnam War wearing his old army uniform, feeling and looking. What do you think he's looking for? His buddies. Maybe his commanding officer. Maybe the guy that saved his life. Maybe he was a squad leader or a captain. Or who knows? But he's looking for people he knows And a lot of them will take a piece of paper and they'll etch on it with a piece of a pencil and it'll take the engraved name in the granite and it'll make an imprint on the paper and they'll take it with them. The interesting thing is since the opening in 1982, the monument has stirred so many deep emotions. Some visitors just walk the length of this long granite memorial slowly and reverently without pause. Others stop before certain names to remember their son or their husband or their sweetheart or fellow soldier. Wiping away tears. But there's three Vietnam veterans on there. Right there on the bottom, you can't see it. It got a little bit cut off. Robert Bedker, Willard Craig, and Darrell Lausch. And that, for them, a visit to the memorial is especially unique. Because as they walk up the long ebony wall and find their own names carved in stone, because of a data coding error, their names are put on there on accident. They weren't killed in action. So think about that. Those three veterans at the bottom, Robert Bedker, Willard Craig, and Daryl Lausch, as they come up and see their name, they're reminded in granite, in stone. I'm on here, but I'm here. And when I think about that, I think about what God's done for us. Our sin has been etched in stone. Our names are on there. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have so much hope. We can go from dark to light. We can, we, our lives can change. We can conquer sin, and eventually we will conquer death. When you do the cross study, that's the only verse I'm going to look at. We're wrapping things up right now. The study objective of the cross study is to take that person that just wrote that sin list and to help them be moved by Jesus' sacrifice to the point of personal surrender to his lordship. Are you still moved by the cross today? when you think about your prayer life, when you think about reaching out to people, when you think about giving your contribution every week, are you still moved by the cross when you think about repenting, when you think about serving? And none of those things are to get salvation. They're a reflection of somebody who's made Jesus Lord. Look at this verse in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. And the purpose of the cross is you read through the whole crucifixion account, first in the Bible, then the medical account from a doctor to help you realize in a small way, but in a big way, this is what Jesus did because of me, this is what Jesus did for me, and this is now who I can be because of what Jesus did. I surrender. I want to be what he wants. I want to do what he wants. First Peter 2.21, it says, To this you were called about suffering, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. Think about this, guys. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And it's by his wounds you have been healed. Look what it says right here. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, so that, look Look at this word right here, we what? Why doesn't it say we will? Because a lot won't. But those that respond to Jesus and say, Jesus is Lord, not just on the day of their baptism, that's just the beginning, on every day, and in every situation, and even if it's hard, we say, you know what, I'm really having a hard time making Jesus Lord right now, I want to kill the guy. I want to kill my roommate. I want to kill my boss. I don't want to do what's right, but I'm going to get there. I'm going to get my heart there, and I'm going to make him Lord, because he's Lord. So we struggle, but at the end of the day, it says his hope was that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. He didn't sin, but he died for our sins in hopes that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. The practical application of that study is helping you realize that I'm a sinner, I crucified Christ. I don't deserve salvation. Yet Jesus loved me enough to sacrifice his life for me. And asking that person, do you see this for your own life? And asking him, how do you want to respond to what Jesus did for you? And someone that's really broken about their sin says, I just want to serve him. I don't want to live in sin anymore. I just want to do what's right. I want to be clean. I want to be wholesome. I want to be holy. I want to do what God wants. I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. I want to please God. I don't want to be false or fake or just a religious person, or double-minded, I want to make Jesus the number one in my life. Ask the person, if you were here, what would you tell them? Jesus, I'm really sorry. How can I pay you back? I really love you. I'm really, I mean, I know I can't say it enough, and that's not, but I just, I surrender. And then how should you respond? Titus 2:11 to 14 says, The grace of God, which means God's favor you didn't earn, teaches you to say no to sin and ungodliness and to live an upright, self-controlled life. Let me just close here with this story and then we're going to break in our groups. Uh, There was a guy in 1946, a young young scientist and a daring scientist He was carrying out May of 1946. So it was right after the nuclear bomb went off in Hiroshima. They were still working with nuclear uh, weapons and they were getting ready to prepare blowing up a nuclear weapon and working towards the hydrogen bomb in the Bikini Atoll, an area out there in the ocean and in the South Pacific. And they had, to, they had this doctor had con- successfully, this young doctor, performed this experiment so many times before. And in his effort to determine the amount of uranium-235 necessary for a chain reaction, what they call critical mass, they would take this little tool right here, this little uh, bowl, and they would mix these different pieces of radioactive material together. And what he was doing was he'd push the two hemispheres of uranium together, and just as the mass would become critical, They'd push it apart and break the bond with a screwdriver, stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical and a chain reaction started, um, this gentleman's, Louis Slotten, his screwdriver slipped. And the hemispheres of the uranium just came close together, and suddenly the whole room filled with a dazzling blue haze. Young Louis, instead of ducking and possibly saving himself, he tore about the two hemispheres with his bare hands, because he knew what was going to happen. Everybody was going to be killed. So he quickly just ripped with his own hands and broke apart the uh, hemisphere to stop the chain reaction. By that instant, self-forgetful daring, he saved the lives of seven other people in the room. As he waited for the car to come take him to the hospital, he said this to his companion. You're going to come through all right, but I haven't the fadest chance myself. Nine days later, he died in agony as a young man. And, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, that's what Jesus did. He walked right into sin, the concentrated radiation of sin. He allowed himself to be touched by the curse and he broke that chain reaction called the power of sin and gave us hope. Let's let that move us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So we're going to break in our groups right now. If you're a guest, we're just going to meet over here by the, by the front of the stage. And I just want to get to know you, see what you thought about tonight. Everyone else, let's get in our B groups of three or four, no bigger. And let's ask answer those uh, two questions, number two and three, and then spend some time praying about our righteousness, okay? You've just listened to the Elevate podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit elevatecoastal.com.